Well, it might not be exactly justice for Rohingya Muslims, okay? But I think we can call it a small step forward after years of persecution. You see, the International Court of Justice has ruled Gambia's case can go ahead at The Hague in the Netherlands. What was Gambia's case? Let me remind you, it wanted to hold Myanmar accountable for genocide against the Rohingya Muslims. Hey guys, Sami Zaydan here. Welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. All right, guys, before we bring in our first guest, and yes, we do have two guests for you today, but before we bring the first one in, I want to explain a little bit about him. This is somebody who has escaped those massacres, that very difficult situation in Myanmar, and then ended up in Cox's Bazaar refugee camp. That's one of the biggest refugee camps for the Rohingya in the world. That's in Bangladesh. And we were really blessed to be able to speak to him firsthand, directly. He speaks English. He's in a refugee camp where, you know, internet connections, you can imagine how difficult it is for people to speak and to get connections up to scratch. So I'm going to level with you. The audio quality, it might not be what we would like, but the editorial value of what he had to say and what he had to share was so important that we felt we couldn't deprive our listeners from hearing his account. So bear with us. After a few minutes of that, we will be talking to someone else. Ronan Lee is an expert. He's an author. He's a former Australian member of parliament. He's a huge authority on this issue, so we'll be hearing from him later. This is Kim Mong. I am founder and executive director of Rohingya Youth Association, Aruai. I am working for the Rohingya community from the ground in Bangladesh. In the refugee camp, life is very horrified. We do not want to see and want to live more in the refugee camp. There is no free movement. There is no education opportunity. There is no job opportunity. There is no lively activity. We cannot move one camp to another. We have no free movement. The host country and host government, they did not try to give the full right of free movement. Actually, we don't know what is their policy. They are strong moving Rohingya from one camp to another. What we are getting support from the World Food Program, WFP, it is not enough for our family. This is the limit, the source for us. Uh, the basic thing is that the people are need basic healthcare, the facility running by the NGO in the refugee game is not enough for the people. I am one of the eyewitness. I see a lot of people cut their land, their arm, some of the, their body lack of the well treatment those kind of the victim are the gun shot victim from the Myanmar military government when they fail to bangladesh there is no enough and the facility for those kind of the people so their body were cut down due to lack of the medical enough facility there is no available medical facility for the patient this is the one of the major issues the Rohingya refugee are facing right now in Bangladesh refugee camp. There is no well medical treatment. So people are a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering for that issue. So many victims die and cut off their leg, cut off their body. 
which is injured by the gun of the Myanmar military, where lack of their treatment, they cannot keep their body alive. They cut later because of a lack of the treatment. More than half of the population need this kind of the assistance right now, but the people are not getting enough because there is no a strong and big NGO who are supporting this kind of the facility. So lack of the, this kind of the psychological support, the people are also suffering right now. We are ready if we get what we are demanding, the citizenship issue and the guarantee of our property and the guarantee of return to our original place. If they provide in this kind of the guarantee, we are ready to go there because in the refugee camp, we have a lot of suffer. We do not want to live anymore in the refugee camp. Actually, the junta have the political willingness to accept the Rohingya people as a citizen of the Myanmar. It is possible for them. This is not difficult for them, but depend on their political willingness. On censorship, of course, we all are disappointed with hard silent policy and diplomatic way because she is one of the responsible person of the Rohingya genocide because in her government time, in her period time, it is the happening the, on the Rohingya community. As a state person and the leading person and the state of the government, she has more responsibility to protect the Rohingya people, but he failed to protect. But he's silent. The full solution for us getting the citizenship, equal right and free movement, what are the citizen and ethnic group in Myanmar getting? This is our full right. We are wanting, we are waiting for that. That's been a heartbreaking topic, but we felt we had to do it. Thank you very much. Here's the first-hand account from an Al Jazeera correspondent covering the plight of the Rohingya, and it's a disturbing minute, we should warn you. I have covered war, I have covered violence throughout my career, but I have never heard of anything like that happening to human beings. The first time I arrived uh, to the camps, it was unlike anything I've experienced before. It was pain and misery and trauma on a scale so large that it was almost unfathomable, um, even for somebody who was seeing it right in front of their eyes. Rajuma had been in her village of Tulatoli in August of 2017 when the village came under attack. She had been taken to a house by members of Myanmar's military. Her child, her baby, had been taken from her arms and then thrown into a fire in front of her face. And um, then she was, she was gang raped. And when I heard that, I just didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to do. But when she was recounting what had happened to her, she had lost several members of her family, her mother and several siblings. And at one point during the interview, she started crying. <laughs> and screaming out for her mother, her mother who could no longer be there or protect her. And recently, the UN's human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, came to Bangladesh. She met with the refugees in Cox's Bazaar. 
UN is doing the best we can to support them. We'll continue doing that. But we also need to deal with the profound roots of the problem. We need to deal that and ensure that they can go back to Myanmar when there are conditions for a safety and voluntary return. All right, it's time now to bring in our second guest in this show. Well, great to be with you. I'm Ronan Lee. I'm a doctoral prize fellow at Loughborough University, London's Institute for Media and Creative Industries. And I'm joining you today from Brisbane. Fantastic. So as I'm sure you know, the International Court of Justice has ruled that Gambia's genocide case against Myanmar can proceed. Is this a huge turning point? I think it is. I've always thought it was a strong case. Uh, the Myanmar government, of course, has the military has argued that it's not. But I think on its merits, I think the case that genocide has been committed and that the genocide against the Rohingya reaches the very high legal threshold that the International Court of Justice requires. That's something that's going to be found by the court, that it is genocide. This, though, I think is important because this is really a big step towards justice for a community that's just had none of it for decades. I mean, the Rohingya have been shockingly mistreated, I mean, it's genocidal. Uh, they've been victims of just about every crime you can imagine and that you can name. The Rohingya community from Myanmar have been victims of that and they've received no justice for that. Is it fair to say that there's been weak international response to that? I think the international response has been hopeless if the aim is to stop this happening in other places in the future. Why is that the case? Is it just a matter of people don't care about them? They haven't got oil, they haven't got some strategic position in Europe, so why bother? Yeah, I mean, that's broadly it. Geopolitics plays a role. I mean, every geopolitical situation you might describe as being unique. But in this case, the major player in the region is China. They're the regional hegemon. I think there's been strong words from the US and, and other Western governments about what's going on, but a lack of will to take on China. The perception is that by engaging too much within Myanmar, um, that you'd be taking on China and that you'd be threatening China's hegemonic role in that place. And they've not been willing to do that. Now, mm. we're seeing very different things in places like Ukraine, where the West perceives that it has a geopolitical interest, that it has its individual interests at stake. I think we'd probably see that with Taiwan as well. A very different response there, right? Utterly different. I mean, an immediate response. I mean, I can't believe that it's still possible for the Myanmar military to gain money from selling its gas reserves on the international market. They're still able to do that. They're still able to import weapons with no global arms embargo on the Myanmar military. I mean, we know they're using those weapons against civilians. Um, we know that there is a genocidal regime. I mean, these are the last people should have access to those things. And I think if the response in Myanmar had been the same as it has been in the Ukraine, I think it would be a very different situation within Myanmar and a very different situation for the Rohingya. So, Ronan, what does this ruling by the International Court of Justice establish? simply the point of whether or not it has jurisdiction or something more than that? No, it's a ruling about jurisdiction. I mean, what the Myanmar military wanted to avoid was for the court to actually examine the evidence 
of genocide. They don't want the court to be able to examine the evidence and to come to a conclusion. So their initial argument was that the Gambia simply didn't have standing, that the Gambia wasn't closely enough related to the events that have occurred within Myanmar and to the crimes against the Rohingya. But of course, the Gambia, as has Myanmar, signatories of the Genocide Convention. So the Gambia has an interest in ensuring that the Genocide Convention is applied and that other members of the convention, those who've signed it, like Myanmar, are living up to their obligations as signatories of that convention. So that's what the court found. The next step, though, is that the court's going to examine what is a substantial body of evidence that indicates that atrocity crimes quite likely, well, in fact, I believe genocide have occurred against the Rohingya. Now Now they're going to actually look at the question of what happened and whether it constitutes genocide, right? That's right. But already there are reports by human rights organisations saying genocide is definitely going on. They've documented it, right? Yes, they have. But the threshold that the court uses is an incredibly challenging one to meet in a legal sense. So it's a bit different than simply being a UN investigator or a human rights investigator now. That's exactly right. And it's, in fact, even a little bit different to the definition that some genocide scholars would use. The court will rely upon the Genocide Convention. And the key sticking point will be whether or not there is genocidal intent on the part of the perpetrator. So it's a horrible thing to discuss in terms of what might have occurred because the court will look at the nature of the crimes and that they'll say, well, is there an attempt to destroy this group in whole or in part? And if there is, they'll move to the second part. So if they believe that, then they're accepting that that atrocity crimes have been committed against the Rohingya. But to then move to the second part requires them to establish that there was genocidal intent, that this was the intent of the perpetrator. Now, the Myanmar military's defence is going to be, and in fact, they've already laid this out in their preliminary presentation to the court, that crimes and potentially war crimes and potentially crimes against humanity may have occurred, but that the intention wasn't genocide. That's going to be their argument. And the case that the Gambia will put, it will be that there is ample evidence that the intent of the Myanmar military was to drive the Rohingya out of the country or murder them within it. And I think there's ample evidence to find that that's the case. How do you establish intent in that sort of context? It'll be based on a body of evidence. So they'll look at things like what the military say. So they'll look at what military leaders say about groups like the Rohingya. Do they consider the Rohingya to be part of the national political fabric? Well, they do not. What do they say about the Rohingya? Do they use insightful language about them? Do they encourage people to consider the Rohingya to be not part of the country, to be illegitimately resident within the country? And the military does that, and they've done that over many decades. All right, so how long does this whole process take? Because there's plenty of people sitting in refugee camps waiting for this. It will take years. Years? That's a long time if you're sitting in a refugee camp, right? It's a terribly long time. It'll be a process that will not necessarily aid the Rohingya in returning to Myanmar. Even politically? Rona, what about the political pressure of this? The fact that, you know, if this looks like the case is getting underway, might that not apply some indirect political pressure on the Myanmar authorities? I don't think they'll do that. But what they may do is that it may have the effect 
of limiting the military's next crime against the Rohingya. I mean, you've got to remember, we've got one million Rohingya living in refugee camps in Bangladesh, but there's about five or 600,000 potentially Rohingya still living within Myanmar. Displaced in that, some of them are locked down in their communities. There's Rohingya who have been trapped in what I think you could adequately describe as concentration camps within Myanmar since 2012. There's 140,000 Rohingya who've been in camps in and around the Rakhine state capital, Sitwe, since 2012. Other Rohingya are locked down in their communities in northern Rakhine state of Myanmar. So these are the ones that for various reasons couldn't flee in 2017. Are they still being subjected to the sort of violence and liquidation campaigns? Yes, they are. I mean, it's an apartheid state. Its economic conditions in which they live are appalling. They're not allowed to travel outside of their communities. They get arrested if they leave the state. And that's been documented. In fact, state media within Myanmar has been documenting that. They're treated as second-class citizens within the country. They would be living, and the UN investigators have noted this as well, that they're living with the constant fear that the genocide crime that rained upon their community in 2017 could be repeated any day. What needs to change is that the international community needs to change its mind about what needs to happen and how seriously they take events within Myanmar. As a matter, this comes down to political will. It ultimately rulings like we hope we'll get from the International Court of Justice. And, and it is important to the victims that they know that there is somebody that actually is out there looking at their case and letting them know that what happened to them was not right. I mean, that's very important to them. Well, that was going to be my next question. Say, will this actually help individual cases of injustice or will it just be a sort of general ruling saying, yes, genocide was committed? The ruling for them, from the ICJ at least, that's not going to help them get any kind of address as individuals know, the Rohingya community certainly has indicated that they feel it's very important that this is acknowledged, that these crimes against them are acknowledged as atrocity crimes and as genocide. But for things to change, for there to be meaningful change, this is going to come down to political will internationally and the major players internationally. I mean, these are the permanent members of the Security Council, you know, the US, UK, France, China and Russia have got to decide that genocide is not acceptable. And at the moment, that's not the view of the UN Security Council because they've not been prepared to step in and prevent genocide occurring within Myanmar. They probably wouldn't get that through the Security Council, though, if China and Russia are against it. Practically speaking, what could they do? They could take unilateral action and they could indicate a willingness to do that. And I think... There are other tools that could have been enacted in 2017, for instance. The responsibility to protect principles could have been used at that time. I think that might have pushed China to take a slightly different view on what was going on. I mean, I think we were all shocked by the scale of the atrocities that occurred in 2017. I mean, this is the biggest forced deportation in that region since the Second World War. 800,000 people walking across an international frontier over the course of just a couple of weeks. I mean, for scale, I mean, that's a city the size of Dublin or Glasgow or Washington, D.C., walking across a border, carrying whatever they could, um, you know, if they had any possessions that they were able to carry, carrying infants, people were carrying sort of elderly relatives. It was a massive scale. And I think it did shock the international community. 
Please bear in mind this complex situation and the challenge to sovereignty and security in our country when you are assessing the intent of those who attempted to deal with the rebellion. Surely, under the circumstances, genocidal intent cannot be the only hypothesis. How disappointed were you, Ronan, in the stance taken by Aung San Suu Kyi, the darling of the West, the democracy icon? Well, it was horrifying. The really sad thing about the stance that Aung San Suu Kyi took was that it's often been presented internationally as that she was trapped between defending the interests of the Rohingya and supporting views that were widespread within Myanmar that had been encouraged within Myanmar and that this was a a political trap for Aung San Suu Kyi and that she backed a majority view. And that's just not the case. What she could have done in 2017 was called for moderation. And had she done that, had she actually called on the Myanmar military to moderate the behaviour, she said to the people of Myanmar, the military's gone too far, this is unacceptable and they need to stop. I think at that point, that would have been the moment when the Myanmar military either went back to the barracks or launched a coup against her administration. I want to talk a little bit about the fears, the concerns that some countries may try to forcibly return some of the refugees like India and Bangladesh, what that might mean for them. Well, it's fundamentally inconsistent with international principles on refugees. I mean, the principle of refoulement, so returning a refugee to terrible circumstances that they fled is, as a principle, something that under international law should be rejected. It's always important to recognise that Bangladesh has done a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of managing this crisis. Bangladesh opened its border to 800,000 desperate Rohingya refugees in 2017. And they're still hosting hundreds of thousands of them. Well, they're hosting around a million Rohingya right now. And it's important to recognise that they were very gracious in doing that. And that was an important and very decent act. But I think, though, as time goes by, that tensions will arise there'd be a sense within Bangladesh in particular that this might not just be a temporary refugee community, but in actual fact, this is a community that it's not safe for them to return to Myanmar. Every Rohingya I've spoken to about their situation is unified in expressing the view that they'd love to return to Myanmar. They consider it their, I mean, it's their ancestral lands. It's their homeland. It's where they're from. But they want to return when it's safe. I mean, it's a pretty clear view on their part. Every researcher who's done research with the Rohingya finds the Rohingya is a community that wants to return to its ancestral lands within Myanmar, but when it's safe. And I think it's important that the international community provides support to Bangladesh. When you spoke a moment ago about the international response, you know, I couldn't help but think, what do you make of the reaction from Arab and Muslim countries? Well, I think they should do more. I mean, I think that this is an opportunity to demonstrate to, particularly to the Rohingya community and to others, um, this, the Rohingya is a Muslim community. This is a community that, that as co-religionists, um, this should not just be left in the hands of the country that just happened to be proximate. I mean, Bangladesh just happened to be a majority Muslim country that shared a border with Myanmar. There's been some indications from the authorities of Indonesia and Malaysia in terms of Myanmar's activities within ASEAN, but in terms of the resources that are needed to ensure that Bangladesh, not a rich country, is not unduly pressured 
to encourage or aggressively encourage the Rohingya to return to an unsafe situation. I think a lot of people would be looking towards the Gulf. I think that that would be where they would be looking in terms of resources. All right, Ronan, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And thank you, our listeners. Should remind everyone, this episode was produced by Khaled Sultan and sound designed by George Elwir. Our engagement producer is Ayel Malik and our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. And of course, we can't forget our executive producer, Omar Saleh. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. <laughs>